0: The Endurance Asia Podcast. Pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, though they never last. Another shadow of regret i tried to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever rasp. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Welcome to the latest episode of the Endurance Asia Podcast. I'm thrilled this week to be welcoming Ash Dykes onto the show. Ash, for those of you that haven't heard of him, uh, is a a true modern day explorer uh, with some amazing world firsts under his belt. I first heard him talking on the Joe Rogan Show about his crazy exploits wandering across Mongolia, Madagascar, and most recently becoming the first person to ever walk the length of the Yangtze River from source to sea which is an amazing journey of 4,000-something miles, which took him almost a full year to complete. Uh, He's got a great backstory, talking about backpacking around Asia, fighting Muay Thai, uh, and coming up with ever-crazier challenges to test himself. He's a really thoughtful and well-spoken guy uh, who's incredibly gracious with his time. We speak for almost two hours, um, and he's a lot to say about uh, raising awareness uh, when he does these journeys, and uh, something tells me there are some amazing adventures and probably a few more world records in Ash's future. Uh, I really enjoyed the chat and uh, hope to get him back on again soon. So, without further ado, we give you Ash Dykes. That the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining, cause things ain't that bad. Ash. Welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast.
1: Good to be on here, Rick. Thanks for the invite.
0: Oh, mate, I'm so excited to have you on. There's, uh, there's a lot to talk about, but it's, um, it's quite nice timing, actually, because you've, you've just announced the big news that your Walking the Yangtze documentary is going to be airing quite soon.
1: That's it. Yes, yeah, so it is perfect. <laughs> it is perfect timing. What, two days ago I announced it? Which is exciting. So I'm glad to get that off my chest finally Announce that. And yeah, perfect timing because my team, as you said, distribution team are in Singapore. You're now calling from Singapore. Uh, your audience are mainly Asia based in Australia. So uh, perfect timing there, my man.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're looking forward to it. So we'll, um, we'll certainly share the links and let people know how they can watch and we'll, we'll come on yeah. to the, the Yangtze I don't know what you call it challenge insane achievement um, something in uh, in a bit but I think I think probably quite a lot of audience heard you on on Joe Rogan um, or maybe they've come across you elsewhere but for those that haven't perhaps you could just fill us in a little bit on on who you are where you come from and, uh, and how you got to this point
1: yeah yeah so yeah Ash Dykes from North Wales the UK Uh, And all of this crazy sort of madness begun. you know, first and foremost, I'm an adventurer or explorer or extreme athlete, however you want to categorize it. Uh, And it all started just at the age of 16. You know, I've come from a very normal upbringing, Uh, not a financial background, no military background, but just this dream as as a kid to go off to travel, explore the world we live in, you know, soak up different cultures, traditions, I see what the world's about but also see what I'm about so at age 16 I went from high school to my college course which was an outdoor education course you know it was from that outdoor course that I realized I was more the kinesthetic learner learning from more hands-on practical experience and realized that I didn't want to go from college to university I believe many people learn in many different ways and for me it was more Not the lecture room, but more out there making mistakes, unfortunately, but learning fast from those mistakes and trying never to make the same mistake twice type of thing. And I thought that's all good. But, you know, how can I make this this dream of traveling possible? So I started to work. I was working in a fish and chip shop. I was working as a lifeguard. I was cycling every day to and from work, knocking out 240 plus hours per month, you know, cycling along the hideous coast here in North Wales rainy windy but staying dogged you know staying disciplined and come the age of 19 that's when it all sort of begun i set out first place was china and the rest is history
0: <laughs> and did you yeah i mean it's an amazing amazing uh, journey you've been on and, and 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 like you said not not really the typical path that people who become these big adventurers kind of take really i mean you're not yeah you're not public school you're not ex-military um no. And, uh, and yet you've, you've pulled off something or, or several things that no one else has ever done before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. just goes to show, doesn't it? It goes to show that it is inside everyone, you know, whether you're trained or not, whether you go the typical route of military training um, or more my route, which was sort of mixing and mingling with the locals. I always say the locals know best. Um, And I was in their environment, they would take me under their wing, whether that was in the jungles of Madagascar or Myanmar or, you know, the the, the steppe of Mongolia. The locals would, would show me the way, how things are done there. In the jungles, they'd show me what's edible, what's not edible, how to hunt, how to gather. And I would try to remember as much as I could and utilize, you know, a small percentage of their knowledge to help me on my mammoth journey.
0: Do you think what like back then when you were lifeguarding and, and working in fish and chip shops and things like that, did you have a clear idea of where you'd end up or did you just know you wanted something big in the future?
1: Yeah, I had no idea to be honest. Um, I, yeah, I knew that I just wanted to travel for as long as I possibly could. I was pretty much fixated on gathering lots of different qualifications and You know, working on, so before I travel, at age 17 and 18, I was actually focusing on getting my scuba diving qualifications as well because I knew that when I'm traveling, eventually my money will run out and I'll be forced to come back to the U.K., you know, whilst all of my friends would have secured their degrees, sort of moved on with their careers, with their lives, and I'd be back at square one, you know, maybe applying for my lifeguard and job again, so I didn't want that to happen, so I was very fixated on gaining my scuba diving qualifications in hope that I could find work abroad uh, and top up the funds as I travel, and the reason I thought scuba diving is you can pretty much find work, it's like 70 or 75% of water on this planet, isn't it, and there's, you know, there's or a population living amongst uh, along the coasts i was pretty much guaranteed to find work as a scuba diver wherever especially your side of the world you know um and also fixated on getting my snowboarding instructor qualifications so that was where my idea was my idea was just go out there you know travel on a shoestring budget like the budget i had was ridiculous we'll get onto that um but, you know, I, I managed it. <laughs> yeah, it was a case of just travel and then work on different seasons. Maybe the, the winter season go over to be a snowboard instructor or whatnot. You know, the summer season, I would drop back down to the coast and teach in scuba diving. So that was my thinking. But I knew I was always fixated on adventure and taking on these big journeys. I, I just didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know you could do it as a living
0: yeah, well, no, no one sits you down when you're a kid and tells you you can be a, a world record beater, or maybe they will now, but... You know, they do yeah, I think,
1: I think maybe more now than back then. It sounds like was, what, it was only 10 years ago. I'm 29 now, so I've been doing this a decade, uh, but I'm still young in the business, uh, in the industry. But, you know, when I set off, I don't think... There was no Twitter, there was no Instagram. I had Facebook, but I didn't post. I wasn't sharing the journeys. I wasn't doing it to share or promote. I was just doing it because it was the pure love and the pure passion in fact, if I would post on Facebook, it was mainly because I was updating my family on what you know where I was, um, which felt like a chore. So I didn't like to post, you know? So it's crazy how things then flipped and it became super interactive. One of the world's most interactive this latest Yankee Journey was.
0: Yeah, I mean you mentioned your family, like what was their what was there taking? I guess I guess early on you were just going off backpacking like a lot of your mates, and it didn't seem too extraordinary, but had they did you spend a lot of time outdoors as a kid? Were you doing crazy things even when you were younger? Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. When I was younger, I was mainly into the sports, you know, into the ath- athletics and football, rugby, you name it. Um, but like, the outdoors and the camping probably came towards my late teens. And then the college course, you know, it was sort of gaining my avalanche awareness, my winter mountaineering, survival, all of that sort of stuff. But um, I would actually say, it was the first month of traveling at age 19 that was the catalyst and that's when we found me and my friend we sort of set off. we were in china we went over to uh cambodia and i remember we were sulking on the mekong riverbank you know just drinking what dr pepper eating packet crisps such an unhealthy diet just the cheapest stuff we could find and um sort of complaining and saying that we'd spent way more money than we anticipated and we're not doing anything unique you know we had spent two or three weeks traveling now and we found we shared the same photos the same stories and the same experiences as all of the rest of the travelers it was great to be amongst the travelers on the travel route you know i've made friends for life but at the same time that's not what we went traveling for you know when you something about watching sort of david attenborough shows for example and not wanting to you know sit down and watch them but wanted to be out there amongst it so that was my idea. So when I went out there and thought I'd be amongst it, but found myself amongst other tourists looking for that special or unique thing. And we're all taking photos of the Great Water China and trekking together with a tour guide. I was like, no, nah, this isn't. And so it was actually two, three weeks in that we flipped it on its head and we changed things fast. Uh, and I literally just recommended to my friend, like, look, let's do something. We didn't travel thousands of miles just to wind up doing the same damn thing quote from the beach which was one of my inspirational movies back then um, and you know I was there saying let's let's do something different man let's go off the beaten track let's get the the most ridiculous bicycles we can find because we that's all we could afford ridiculousness and uh, and cycle Cambodia in the London Vietnam and we did I don't know if you've seen pictures of the of the bikes that we used.
0: Yeah I mean I'm surprised you even paid ten dollars for them they didn't look <laughs>
1: exactly exactly you know they were ridiculous things they were rusty as anything they had no gears no suspension we didn't take no pump no puncture repair kit we took a five dollar tent that we found out wasn't waterproof Um we packed a loaf of bread on a little basket we had a little pink bell we found string on the side of the road that we strapped our rucksack onto the back of the bicycle with and off we went no map no electronics no nothing and that was over 1,130 miles, crazy roads. We were dodged by lorries, hit by mopeds, chased by dogs. Uh, we'd often cycle through the night. We were living off Red Bull and noodles because we'd often cycle through the night. Um, but there was something about that. When we would be cycling along the, the main road, you know, grabbing on the end of a, a, of a lorry and it would be pulling us up the hills and whatnot because the pedals would fall off sometimes if we tried pedaling them up because the bikes were so bad but then seeing a tourist bus go past and like the middle of the night and all their curtains are closed and they've got their movies on watching TV and I'm like, yes, we're definitely doing it the right way. You know, we're just here struggling, grinding away, losing a lot of weight, eating noodles, but we were mixing with the locals and I was 19 at the time. And it was that journey. I believe that was the catalyst. I said to myself, said to myself I found my niche. I found my passion. I loved this, although we faced great hardship um, and I wanted to continue. And then I just forgot to stop. And here we are today on your podcast.
0: <laughs> what, what happened to the friend you were riding with? Has he carried he, on doing some he, of these he, adventures with you? Yeah, he was doing some cra- We, the,
1: the, adventures got crazier after that Vietnam cycle. Um, we sort of, we then went to uh, Thailand and we crossed the border via the jungle so there's no border pretty sensitive uh with a machete with a local and we ventured into Myanmar and learned how to survive in the jungle with a a Burmese hill tribe that we came across and again they sort of took us under their wing we could communicate really but uh they were just demonstrating and showing me their way of life and we picked up some some, st- some stuff like berries that act as mosquito repellent, how to build rafts or shelter using natural resources. So that was an exciting journey, you know. And we then were trekking the Himalayas with no permit. Off we went, couldn't afford no permit. We just tried to avoid the Pakistan army. We were taught to go down on our knees, put our thumbs behind our ears, and say Allah repeatedly, which means sort of like Allah have mercy on me if the Pakistan army caught us. And we were like, well, oh, surely they're lying to us. That, that was a, a local guy that told us that i was like surely they're just trying to get money from us but we realized that permits were a real thing and then we needed a permit <laughs> but again you know 19 reckless dangerous um not not big expeditions but you know just low budget and just crossing borders and rocking up the mountains with no guides the himalayas during winter season where they warn you don't go there and you know, it's on the border of Pakistan. Just silly stuff, really. But I look back to now and I think, yeah, I needed to do that to get to where I am today for sure. Uh, but I look back now and I think, you know, I couldn't get away with that now. It needs to all be uh, official, of course, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I suppose there's something to be said for being 19 and not, not thinking too far ahead and, and just yeah, thinking right. you're, you're invincible. But I mean, it's yeah, also like yeah. the, the kind of the purest form of adventure, really, because you weren't even doing it for the socials, right? You were, no one, no one knew you were doing it at the time, I guess.
1: Nope. Nope, nothing. Just doing it for the pure love and the passion. Nothing other than that, you know, and just for the cool experiences. Uh, and my friend was with me for, for all of those. And that's when we settled down. You know, we had that that plan here in Wales, which was to further develop our scuba diving and hopefully find work. And and we were successful for the next two years. I was working as a, a master scuba diving instructor, sort of building my way up the ranks. Um, and I was a multi-fighter as well. Uh, I'd had club fights, stadium fights and... You know, it was a great way of of living. You win a fight, it it pays pretty much two, three months worth of accommodation. If you lose, you come home with nothing. Um, But yeah, I loved that life, but I guess I, I began to get quite restless. You know, all of these previous adventures that I was just telling you about, they just crept back in my mind. And I was like, man, I'm still 21, 22. There's still a lot to see and do. And I don't, but even though Vietnam was a crazy cycle, I didn't push myself to the limit. And I was curious, you know, how far can I go? um and I was that sort of that age where I'm just like yeah I reckon I've got this I reckon I could do that let's walk across a desert solo and unsupported. but have you ever been to a desert no but I'll train hard you know just that mentality uh, but that's the mentality that I I guess I needed you know
0: <laughs> yeah I mean so, and you presumably you were in quite good shape then at this point like you've been training quite hard for the Muay Thai and
1: Yeah, I was always training from a young age, even calisthenics, before I knew calisthenics was a thing, you know, push-ups, sit-ups in my room at age 13 or 14, Um, and then I just loved sort of body movement, you know, taking off all categories, you know, had to master sort of balance, agility, to coordination, reaction time, power strength a lot, and then I was doing boxing in Wales, I was then doing Muay Thai out in Thailand, so And I'd be running, you know, with a heavy rucksack in 35 plus degrees Celsius up the mountains, through the jungle and whatnot, trying in for my next fight. Um, And so that probably really helped prepare me for the Gobi Desert as well. Uh, But not only did it help me prepare physically, it helped me mentally, because I do say it's probably 70% mental and only 30% physical. You definitely need those physical attributes, but it's about that mindset just as much, you know, even more so. So I was in that sort of fight mentality that I needed for Mongolia because I would have to fight if I was solo and unsupported and I didn't afford, I couldn't afford no evacuation like the previous guy had who would, who attempted it. So if I got myself in a dangerous situation, I would have no choice, but to walk out, you know, no helicopters going to come for me. And that was because of the lack of budget.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So was that, I mean, just the scale of that adventure, did that mean, did that kind of force you to tackle it a bit differently? Do you have to plan it a bit more and,
1: yeah you know stupidly I was looking at first to get myself another cheap ten dollar bicycle cycle from Koh Lipe or Koh Tao in Thailand um up to Mongolia <laughs> I Meaning I'd be cycling you know north uh, south to north of, of China as well and then attempted to walk across Mongolia and I was thinking yeah that'd be cool but then I was, you know started to look for those people because I, I was never in it for the record and never knew it was it was a world record up for grabs I was sort of Um, reaching out to these people who had done it before to ask them for help you know any tips any advice that they can provide any dangers you know what to look out for Uh, and I was doing extensive research and you know and then that's when I started to put it out on Facebook seeing if people know people at the Royal Geographic Society or know uh, people from the Mongol Rally or someone I can get in touch with and the contacts started to build and I pretty much had um, the guy, Rob Mills, who's like the face of adventure when it, he, he manages the Adventurists, which is the big Mongol rally, spent over five years extensively traveling all over Mongolia. He jumped on board as my logistics manager. He then took the planning even further. I won't bore you too much with the logistics of it. But we had these different teams and we were searching extensively and we couldn't find any evidence to, to suggest that anyone had completed a solo and unsupported walk across Mongolia. Of course, many of the nomads do it all the time and have done for thousands where they're sort of traveling all over the country and beyond. Um, but as a as a unit, you know, with a family, with friends or with a camel, which would be supported. And then we found a guy who had attempted it. He had attempted it three times, um, failed on all three occasions just before or just after the halfway point. Uh, and I managed to find his contact details and I simply just reached out to him, you know, what, what the dangers What what should I look out for? All of that. And he got back with this majorly intimidating list, you know, look out for the gray wolves, the stagnant water, the snow blizzards, the sandstorms, the steep ravines, the dry wells, the the locked wells. And it just went on and on. And then I looked into this guy, I realized he was a Navy soldier, uh, a desert explorer, had already crossed the Sahara Desert. And I was like, what chance do I have? I'm a 22-year-old beach bum, living on an island in Thailand, fighting for a living and scuba diving far from any deserts. And I thought, you know, I can't do this. And I, I did put, my, put myself off it. I was looking for a more populated, safer country to walk across solo and unsupportive, you know, for a few weeks. I completely like threw Mongolia away. Um, but although I threw it away, it was still deep in my mindset, you know, I was sort of like just because no one's found a way to do it. It you know, doesn't mean it can't be done, you know, the right preparation and the logistics, the right training. Then maybe, you know, maybe I can do it. And that's when Mongolia came on board. that's when I came back to the UK, almost penniless, went straight into my parents. I couldn't even afford no gym membership. I had my uncle drop me off I a tractor tire. I was working on calisthenics in my garden in the snow, in the winter. It didn't matter. I had a trailer built by a family friend. So the reason it was so long and supported, uh, sorry, the reason I needed a trailer was if you're doing a journey solo and unsupported, there's no rucksack big enough to be able to carry just water from one well to the next. You would need like a car or a caravan or a camel or you know, goats or whatnot to travel with other people. Um, and so, if I was to do it solo and unsupported, pulling a trailer behind me was the only way to successfully do this until maybe in the future when the wells get closer together and they find me points or whatnot um but when i was doing it in 2013 yeah i would the only way to do it really is with a trailer but this trailer wasn't your carbon fiber built by some high estate brand it was built in a family friend's back garden you know it was made of mild steel so on an empty load it was already 40 kilograms with nothing on it On with a a max load it was 120 kilograms (laughs)
0: And that was mainly water. Like what what sort of distance did you have to cover between the wells?
1: Um, I was covering, I would always make sure that I had water enough to last me. If one well was dry or locked, um, I would always try to hope that I had enough water to get me to the next well. But, you know, one time I didn't, I almost died. I'm sure we'll get to that. Uh, and so I would, I had like a 20 liter container, 20 Uh, litres worth of water, which already is 20 kilograms. So that's 60 kilograms, just the trailer and and the water. But then I needed like six, over six weeks worth of food, six weeks worth of ration packs. I needed kit not only to survive the heat of the Gobi Desert, but to survive the minus, you know, the sub-zero temperatures of the Altai mountains. I was at over 3000 meters sort of pulling the trailer up and down the trailer didn't have any brakes, So that was demanded. And I already lost quite a bit of weight before I even entered the Gobi desert. Um, and it was pretty much, it was three weeks across the Gobi desert, uh, sorry, three weeks across the Altai mountains, five weeks across the Gobi desert and three weeks up through the Mongolian steppe. Uh, so altogether it, it was anticipated to take a hundred days, uh, but it took 78 days. Um, and it was 1,500 miles in total distance.
0: Amazing. What was that? What was that moment like when you got dropped off with the trailer and the guys were like, see you later. And, and yeah, well, I, I
1: took, I took a plane on my own. Um, I took a, a, a you know, just a, a local sort of dodgy little plane. It was, and I'm sure we stopped for, a, you know, we, we had a fuel stop. Between Ulaanbaatar and Olgi, which is the most western city in Mongolia, we had a fuel stop and then we carried on going. I think it took three hours. Uh, I think I might say that three hours from the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, which is sort of the center of Mongolia, to Olgi. And when I arrived at over 3,000 meters, you know, it was still the end of winter season. It was dark, it was cloudy, there was a hailstorm on arrival. Uh, I was resting there for three days with uh, a local called Agban. Who took me in. We couldn't communicate whatsoever. But again, you know, just smiles and hand gestures. Um, And that's sort of how I was living with him for that short while. And, you know, he walked with me for about one, two kilometers. And then towards the end, he sort of, he wished me well. And this guy, I think he summited Everest three or four times. And he looked at the mountain. I remember his words. He was sort of like Everest. Like, okay, you know, good, good. He was like Mongolia. He looked down. He was like, too big, too big. I was like, wow, you know, for someone who's summited Everest to say that, and it, just the worry on his face, you know, uh, so I'll never forget those words because that did make me feel even more intimidated then, you know, I was only 23. And he walked with me a kilometre or two and then, you know, this, this it was a time to split, he gave me a big hug and just the, the dread, the fear on his face uh, said a lot. And, you know, we sort of turned, I was heading off on day one, full of energy I was trying not to burn out you know I had this this perfect track that I was following and I knew that all of my adrenaline and my excitement and my my nerves and anxiety everything would kick in. I'd be smashing out loads of pace and I could burn out on day number one you know so I was trying to pace myself and realize that this is it alone out in the wilderness you know going over eight days without seeing a single human at times just relying solely on myself to make sure I can survive this you know trying to keep the wolves at bay trying to survive those snow blizzards and oh it was crazy man it was intense it was intense but um i, I you know made it through the Altai mountains the locals then started getting wind of the journey and started coming up with a nickname for me which was the lonely snow leopard And i thought at first i thought man what a cool name but i spoke to my logistics manager when i made it to a community that had signal and he was telling me, like, yeah, they're calling you the Lonely Snow Leopard, which is, I forgot what it is, in Mongolian. Uh, and I was like, that's so cool. Why are they calling you that? And he was like, well, because you've not yet been eaten by the wolves. I'm like, great. So it's not a good name then, necessarily. And he's like, not really, but it's kind of cool. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I was looking forward to get to the Gobi Desert, you know, away from the outside mountains. But I was fine.
0: Yeah, I'm re- I mean, I'm really interested in that mindset. Like, had you how did you break down that journey? And maybe that's something that's evolved as you've taken on more and more of these challenges or you've got a bit older, but mm. are you focused sort of, are you just taking it day by day? Do you, are you having to think, I mean, I suppose you're having to think ahead a bit in terms of planning your water and your rations and so on, but how, yeah. do, you, how do you tackle something of that scale? That Even, I mean, by your own admission, you'd never done anything quite like that before.
1: Yeah. I would break it down into so, sort of mini checkpoints. Um, And so that could be like in a week's time, I will get to Tobrog, which is a small community that I know has guaranteed water. You know, there's people there. Um, And so that's how sometimes it would be you know, only two days. Sometimes it would be two weeks. So it would always be aimed at either the next water source uh, or either the next community or either the next city. Um, And that's how I would try to break it down and not focus so much on, you know, the end goal. Which was, you know, anticipate 100 days, which was the most eastern point of, you know, the most eastern city of Mongolia, Troy Bolton. Um, And so, yeah, I would have to definitely break it down. Uh, and it got to sections where even breaking it down to, oh, I've only got four days left, came too, too difficult to visualize. You know, I had to break it down much smaller than that at times.
0: And were there points where you just thought you'd, you'd bitten off more than you could chew? Or did you, or, or were you kind of the further you went, the more confident you were you were going to finish?
1: Yeah, it was it was one of those. I think the further um, into the expedition I realised, you know, I got this. I remember coming out of the Altai Mountains, sort of the end of the Altai Mountains, at the start of the Gobi Desert, and there was a section there where I thought to myself, you know, I've got this. It was perfect temperature. I was back lower on altitude now. I'd made the Altai Mountains. There were no wolf problems. Uh, I was told by the locals that I'd be eaten alive by the wolves, You know, and I came across wolf uh, footprints, but there, w- there were no issues with wolves on that expedition. Um, and, you know, I started feeling a little bit more confident, but I think that came back to bite me hard because little did I realise I'd face such a big challenge that it wouldn't necessarily only potentially jeopardise the expedition, but my life, and that was just how dramatic the Gobi Desert was, the temperature the heat, everything, it was just sort of overwhelming. Uh, and I think a couple of weeks that I was in the Altai Mountains, maybe because of the temperature and it was cold, I didn't really feel like I needed to hydrate. You know, you know how it is when you're in a cold temperature, you do sometimes forget that you do need to drink. And then by the time I hit the Gobi Desert, another couple of weeks went by and I was just slipping and slipping into heat exhaustion, uh, severely dehydrated on my way to heat stroke, which is usually fatal. And that's when things started getting tricky. That's when it started to get really tough. Um, And I did have a a big scare. It was sort of just to explain sort of the surrounding. It was over 40 degrees Celsius. You know, the the trailer that I was now pulling, I was facing a mix of gravel, but also soft sand. And so the tyres were super thin. The tyres would sink into the soft sand, making it feel like 500 kilograms, let alone 120, you know. Um, and I was a lot skinnier. I was a lot weaker. I started to become delirious because my I was sort of rationing my last remaining dribbles of water. I uh, came across a well which was dry, but I didn't ration enough to allow me enough water to get to the next water source, and so I was in a, a tricky situation. But I also pushed on for too long that I realised I had passed the point of pickup. So my agent based in the capital city would need to allow at least three to four days to get to me. If I called for an emergency, that was my evacuation. know, if I stood on the back end of it and I'm, a, I'm all pit viper or a snake style, four days would be far too long. Um, but then another two days for him to get me away. So it was either six days. And at my worst point of the Gobi Desert, hallucinating, delirious, almost like actually feeling my organs drying up uh, and sort of rationing the last sort of dribbles. I was hiding under my trailer because that was the only place I could find Um, to escape the sun there was no breeze there was no natural shade the the sun was just pelting on me all day every day and I'd be resting almost an hour at a time under my trailer and it was at that point I realized if I don't keep getting up and pushing on I'm gonna die out here in the Gobi Desert and that hit me hard that was a a shock of realization that you know now it's on me I've messed up with the water source you know that being dry I've messed up with a the point of pickup, you know, my only option is to keep getting up and walking towards where I know is a confirmed water source because we had, like, confirmed water sources and unconfirmed water sources along the route of this Mongolia trip. Um, and this next one that I was heading towards, still four days away, and my worst state was a confirmed water source. But four days of that when I, already, when I was already dying, was just too much to fathom. You know, I couldn't visualize four days. I've always been a big believer in the law of attraction visualization and whatnot, but four days of that agonizing pain, just one one hour feels like the whole day in the Gobi Desert like that. Um, but what I did visualize is 100 meters. You know, I could see 100 meters. So this brings me back to the point of breaking the goals down. I actually broke it down to the point of 100 meter sections because that's all I could walk. And so I allowed myself no more than five minutes under my trailer because I found myself resting for far too long, over an hour sometimes. And so by breaking my goals down into five minutes resting under the trailer and 100 metres walking before resting for another five minutes because that's all I could manage to walk. Um, And although I was in a bad way and it was very slow, it was a very slow process, I was making progress and I did just about make it to that community that had water source. Uh, And I was in an a dreadful way an awful way you know it took me over eight days to recover my urine was black um again I was just hallucinating I was, I was delirious as I mentioned and that was the biggest scare and I was now fearful to go back out again you know I, I saw that how fast the sun can potentially take you um and I just didn't I didn't want that again but you know, eventually, it started to get better. and My mindset started to come back to normal, and that positive ash started to shine again. You know, and I was like, right, we've got it. Only another week or two, and I'm out of the Gobi Desert. And so, I just told myself not to rush this next section. You know, always carry too much water. That's the thing, though. If you carry a lot of water, the trailer it's already heavy with half the amount of water. You know, with an extra ten liters, that's an extra ten kilograms. And when you're that weak, and you've been pulling the trailer for. Six, so many weeks, 10 kilograms is a huge amount um, to be pulling behind you. 10 extra kilograms amount to 120. But yeah, you know, I made it. That was terrifying. My, my family were terrified as well. Um, they went through a lot during that section. And they were saying, just come home. And, you know, at first I was just like, no, even if I have to stay here for a month, even if it takes me two months to recover, I'm going to remain at this little community and recover and that's when I saw a different side to myself, you know, because I didn't know how I'd react. Mongolia was where I had the most fear, I would say, out of all three big world firsts. Mongolia was the expedition that I held the most fear and the most doubt because I'd never tested myself like this before, you know. All of the previous adventures were with a friend or, you know, it was cycling, which can be dangerous, but you're on a road where there's road, there's people where there's people, there's food, there's water. You're not not survival. Uh, It's an adventure, like a damn cool adventure, but there was nothing necessarily really to worry about. Even like where we were sleeping that night in Vietnam, we didn't really need to worry. But with Mongolia, I just didn't know how I'd react to sandstorms or snow blizzards or all the loneliness, you know, isolation. Because it's one thing being at your computer or watching something on a TV show and thinking, oh, I could do that. But then when you're dropped into the harsh reality of, oh shit, you know, this actually is a lot harder than it looks. You know, it takes you by surprise. and I, I, I feared that I may quit too early. Um, so that's when I learned about that mindset. And that's a message to, you know, the audience listening, is you are far more capable than you give yourselves credit for. That's certainly what I learned. I remember putting myself down a lot, like, oh, you know, I'm not military trained or I don't have the finances to do this or I've not crossed the desert before. They're three legitimate and very reasonable excuses to tell me not to take on this expedition. You know, if wants to say, why aren't you taking on that expedition? Oh, I'm not military trained. I've never been to a desert. I don't have the funds. They'd be like, oh, fair enough. Yeah, you'd be stupid to take it on. You know, but I still did. I went out there with all of that doubt, with all of that fear and proved that it is still possible. And the previous guy who attempted it, he actually did message me as well. He said, you proved that the impossible was possible. And I like to think I was the angel sat on your shoulder, which was really cool of him. You know, such a nice guy to say that. Um, and yeah, maybe, and maybe he was, you know, who knows? And that's why the book is called mission possible.
0: <laughs> yeah. But yeah. We'll, we'll link to that one as well. I mean, it, it's an amazing achievement and I think, um, it's interesting that I think it, it sounds like you learned almost more from, from that trip than, than, than any of the others in a way. Like that was the, the transformative experience of your life. I mean, I learned more from that trip than I did the whole of my educational life in school.
1: <laughs> I came out of that different guy. I was like, whoa, okay.
0: <laughs> what, what, I and mean, so when you, when you finally finished, like how long after you finished, did you, I mean, did you start thinking about the next one or were you, did, did you think that's me done? I'm, I've, I've got my world first. I'm, I can retire now.
1: No, no, I, I never thought of that. You know, I would always say, even when I was like 20, 21, doing these adventures, I was always saying, if I do it, you know, and with this Mongolian one that I was planning, if I succeed, what I, what I mustn't do is become that one-hit wonder. You know, like you sort of, a, a great song comes on by, a, by an artist and then you never hear that artist again, but they produced that banger and they just disappeared and they produced that one-hit wonder. I didn't want to be that guy who did that expedition and then, you know, rests and talks about that one expedition all his life, you know, when I, when I was 22, you know, telling the grandkids or whatnot, I was like, no, I've got to remain dogged. I've got to, you know, not see it as a big world world record, but see it as that was a good crack. That was a cool adventure onto the next. And that's always been my mindset. Same with Mission Yancy. I'm like, yeah, it was a good one. Loved it. Onto the next, you know, and I think you must be like that. Otherwise you just become, I don't know, it can hit you and maybe you've, you become a bit too big headed and sort of rest on your achievements. And, you know, people have achieved much bigger and greater things and people have better stories to tell and you can always learn from other people. And that's how, that's my side. That's what I see. And so that's why I'm never resting on uh, my previous expeditions and being, you know, just, just talking about them. I'm always on to the next one because you can always learn and you can always develop. So in Mongolia, yeah, you're right. Whilst I was taking on Mongolia, I already kind of knew that Madagascar would be next. And I remember sometimes in my tent, um, you know, when there's nothing better to do, I'd be thinking and planning my Madagascar trip. And that's not in a cocky way. It was in a way to help motivate myself to say that I'm currently planning this Madagascar journey. But the only way I could do this Madagascar journey is if I successfully complete this current one that I'm on. Because if I can't complete this, you know you don't stand a chance in in Madagascar type of thing so it almost indirectly helped to provide me with some inspiration and motivation to finish this successfully and then there might be the potential that you can take on Madagascar you know
0: how are you coming up with these ideas then? so so Mongolia was I guess just that you're on the backpacker trail in in southeast Asia and Mongolia is about yeah. as far away from that as as you can get Pretty yeah. really untouched where did where did Madag- Madagascar come from?
1: Uh, so Madagascar came from the locals in Mongolia, I like, to, I like to say. Because when I was trekking Mongolia, of course, I told you I went sometimes over eight days without seeing any locals. But when I did come across them, they were just amazing. The language barrier, you know, we couldn't communicate at all. The only phrase I learned was Tana de Rusugnu, which means do you have water, please? Which was important for the Gobi Desert, of course. And so uh, when I came across these locals and they were so amazing, I would always feel quite emotional leaving, leaving them thinking, you know, I'm never going to see them again, but they helped to make this junior success if I complete it. Um, and again, you know, I love meeting people. I love talking to people, even if we were drawing in the sand, you know, we were showing pictures. It was all of that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, I just knew that my next expedition, I want I wanted to be coming across more locals. And when I was thinking about, you know, different countries, different places, it was like Madagascar. It's, it's a country that seems to feature in everyone's mind, mainly because of the movie, you know, the cartoon Madagascar. But nobody really knows what's what's there. They don't really know what goes on there. Uh, and, you know, if they do, it's probably from advertisements that they've seen on TUI or Thomas Cook or whatnot, you know, on the beach resorts. And Madagascar is two and a half times the size of the UK in terms of landmass. It's the fourth largest island in the world. 80% of all plant life and wildlife found on the island is found nowhere else in the world, which makes it the most unique country on the planet. Uh, and so it was all of this. And it was the fact that it's a population of 24 million. And I'm going to be constantly coming across the locals, which is why I do these adventures. I hate it to be about one man and his mission. It's not that. Uh, and you'll see in the documentary, it's very much about the locals, the people of the country, the country itself, not my opinion, and what I think about the locals and what goes on there, their view, you know, let's get inside their head, let's share stories from them that people may not have otherwise have known. And so that's my that's my take on it. And with Madagascar, I knew that I didn't want to do that solo. I wanted to do that with a guide who could, a Malagasy guide who could speak English and help translate along the way. And so, you know, that made it again equally more exciting than Mongolia, because although Mongolia has that sort of hardcore status, solo and unsupported, Madagascar, I learned so much more about the locals because I had a local guide educating me along the way, you know, with their traditions, with what goes on there and why they do this. And so, uh, yeah, so Madagascar was pretty much because I've been coming across so many more locals and, of course, the unique biodiversity.
0: And so what were you, what were the takeaways from the, the Mongolia trip? Like what did you, what did you do differently in tackling Madagascar? I mean, obviously a different environment, different terrain. I mean, mm. how, does, how does the distance compare? What was the, what were yeah, you taking?
1: So with Madagascar, it's only with the, with the route that I was taking, which was the most Southern point of the Island, literally the very most Southern tip via the interior. So Madagascar has kind of like your, it has a whole mountain range, actually, that covers the entire length of the island that lies sort of central east of the island. And the mission for that was to walk from the most southern point to the most northern point along the mountainous ridge. So if you can imagine, not, not like that, but if you can imagine the Himalayan range and stay in centre of that range in the highest peaks, sort of like that, but they're not that high uh, in Madagascar. Um, and so effectively that's what I was doing all the way to the most Northern point summit so in the eight highest mountains along the way it was, but these mountains were difficult in, in a different way, you know, jungles tough on its own mountains are tough on their own. These were sort of merged. So they're mountains, jungles. So you're sort of climbing up the mountain with a machete. So you're not with the rope but you're climbing up, leaning on trees with a machete sort of hacking your way 14 hours. And you'll be lucky to cover two kilometers. To four kilometers, um, and so yeah, that was the that was the route. But with Madagascar, unlike Mongolia, Mongolia, I didn't have the funds to do a recce, you know, to get out there and actually scout the land, see what I'm up against. With Madagascar, I barely did, but you know enough to make it happen. I managed to get out to Madagascar for eleven days. Uh, test myself in the jungle, you know, see what the mountains are about, learn the customs and the tra- traditions along the way, so I didn't offend anyone. Um, and just get familiar before I came back to the UK and start to prepare. And it was that recce that was really important because I went out to Madagascar and I came back and I thought, wow, I have majorly underestimated Madagascar. I think Mongolia gave me all that confidence, having completed it, that I was like, yeah, I've got this, um, which could have proved dangerous had I not taken the the quick trip to see what I was up against. The jungles were a lot denser than I anticipated. The, The mountains weren't. They're not really walking mountains. They're sort of scrambling mountains, you know, hands and hands and feet, sort of working your way up. Uh, and I'd have the rucksack, but um, and although it was only a hundred miles longer in terms of duration than Mongolia, it would take almost double the duration. Um, it took uh, 155 days to complete Madagascar, compared to 78 days for Mongolia. Amazing. And that-
0: what, for the what, um, what kind of physical training are you doing to get ready for this then? I and mean, obviously, stepping it up after you've done your recce, but you know, how are yeah. you getting ready for something like this?
1: The, the training's brutal. <laughs> it's maybe a bit too much. I don't know. But no, it seemed to work. The training is, you know, it was so successful and effective uh, for the Mongolia journey that I decided to continue that way of training. So, of course, now, you know, even though all the gym membership finances and all that sort of stuff are uh, history, I still train from home because no one's using my kit. I can use it anytime. I can experiment, do what I want at any time. I'm outside, so I'm still in the elements. So even if it's snowing, I am beating up that tractor tire with the sledgehammer. I'm flipping it. I'm still on the bag doing my Muay Thai i'm still on the bar doing my muscle ups um you know various dips and pull-ups and whatnot so and i still do my cardio you know so for mission Yangtze, it was you know i had an altitude training mask i had a weighted vest you know i had struck ankle um weights around my ankles it was just a savage workout really you know um with madagascar i was doing similar stuff yeah again all all from the garden to really prepare for that and the only thing that I would have differently with Madagascar is unlike the desert of Mongolia I was able to fight in Muay Thai in similar conditions to what I would face out in the Gobi um whereas with Madagascar I was training through the winter about to face you know the crazy temperatures of the Malagasy desert down south or the jungles up north so I didn't have that temperature factor but um I believe training in the winter helped to, you know, whilst maybe it didn't help so much physically to face that temperature, it did enhance mentally training in the winter, getting up early in the morning out of your warm covers, you know, to be grinding outside in the rain and wind, um, where I wouldn't have that choice in Madagascar or Mongolia. So I do train not only to help prepare myself physically, but also mentally.
0: Yeah, and I mean, specifically, because these walks, I guess, they must be pretty punishing on your feet. Like are you, what are you doing to kind of take care of your feet as you're covering such epic distances?
1: Yeah, literally all I do is I take tape. So I don't use Compede um, or any others that are there. I literally just take tape along with me. Um, in terms of footwear, you know, for Mongolia, I bought myself, there was, there was a 50% sale in Sports Direct. And so I purchased myself some Carrymore Trainers, which are kind of like sports trainers, tennis tennis trainers, if you like. And I used them, and they they, <laughs> they worked. I crossed Mongolia. I had Crocs as well, so I had carry more trainers, and I had a pair of Crocs, um, the Crocs I would use at night to allow my blisters to heal and air my feet out a little bit around my little campsite. Um, and the carry more trainers, you know, there's no ankle support, but my... My idea there was I didn't want to take big, heavy boots because when it rains, they're going to get wet. They're going to become heavy. My feet are going to be drenched throughout the day. They're going to take forever to dry. Um, And I don't really need that, you know, touch wood so far with over the 8,000 miles or whatnot that I've trekked. I've never twisted an ankle and I've never worn any ankle support uh, and I've never worn boots. And so those trainers in Mongolia were so good (laughs) that I was too scared to mix it up. So for Madagascar, I, I did the same. I purchased more, carry more trainers. <laughs> they weren't a sponsor. They, I literally just rocked up at Sports Direct and said, yeah, these will do. Um, but I took for Madagascar, I took those trainers because they were quick drying. They were light on my feet. Um, they were comfortable to wear. They had foam sort of soft padding, just like trainers do. No leather like boots. Um, and I also took sandals because when it comes to the jungles, I wanted to go the way the locals go, which isn't your big sort of military boots. They don't use them. They either go barefoot or they wear sandals. And that's because they're constantly crossing little streams and rivers that I found wearing my carry mores. I was constantly sitting on a rock, taking them off, taking my socks off, pulling my trousers up, crossing, and then getting to the other side, drying them out, socks on, shoes on and continue. I thought, I, I can't be doing that. I'll lose so much time with the amount of rivers that I've got to cross. Uh, that I just took sandals and was able to just plough through all of the all of the rivers.
0: Amazing. Was Madagascar, is that sort of when you started um, raising a bit of awareness around the environmental issues that you were seeing on these on these walks?
1: It was actually Mongolia, um, but as you can imagine, you know, there was no profile at all with Mongolia. Um, I don't even think I was on Instagram. Maybe I wasn't even on Instagram. I think it was Twitter and Facebook um not even a not even a public page you know because I had no PR there was there was nothing like that it was just you know I'd, I'd go and I'd share I took a tracking device so people could follow the journey or via the website um and so with Mongolia that was when I thought you know let's not just do it for the sake of a record you know if there's something that I can do to help Mongolia or there's some a message I can do to um to help support it you know rather than sort of kind of take advantage, walk across their country, just take credit for, yay, you know, without giving something back. I thought, let's, let's do something. It's close to my heart. You know, I'm 23 now. I was 23 then. Um, I've spent a good three, four years traveling around Asia. And in that three, four years, I was able to see already some of the damage from lack of sustainability, uh, environmental harm. And I thought Let, it's close to my heart naturally because I love the outdoors. And so with Mongolia, what I did is I partnered up with the Red Cross I was raising funds for the Red Cross, who helped to protect the Mongolian nomads. And so the winters are so much harsher now, that effectively the nomads aren't able to continue their way of life um, due to climate change. So the winters are harsher, it kills off their livestock because the livestock can't survive, and the locals are forced to move to the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, um, and they're forced to look for work in the capital. And there's now a big gür or yurt, white felt tent district, surrounding the capital city. And in the winter, it's one of the harshest, if not the coldest capital cities in the world, drops below minus 30 degrees Celsius. And of course, they've got to stay warm in their gear. And so they burn anything they could find. A lot of that includes plastic. And so in the winter, there's this big, thick smog that lies across the capital city. And you know, um, mothers are given birth and their children two, three days later are dying due to suffocation, lack of oxygen. The only advice the doctor can say is evacuate the city, escape to the country. Um, and this is something back then, 2013, it actually still in 2020, not a lot of people know about. But especially in 2013, people didn't know this was going on. I didn't. Uh, my logistics manager told me that. And so it was about, you know, spreading awareness on climate change and the effects it has on the nomadic way of life and what it's doing to Mongolia. And the the Red Cross, the money that I was saving for Red Cross, they would help to supply the locals with shelter uh, and with further livestock or with shelter for the livestock to allow them to survive the harsh winter conditions. Um, so, yeah, I started in Mongolia. And then Madagascar, we just upped it again and we just continued from there.
0: Yeah, because I guess by then your profiles, you're you starting to, well, not profiles, growing, you're starting to get a profile for the first time by the by the time you do Madagascar.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was a, you know, there was a UK theatre tour. Um, There was a Discovery Channel feature on Daily Planet. Uh, Lots of features, Channel 5, all of that. You know, it was getting out there, sort of drip feeding. Not quite there, but definitely helped. Social media presence and whatnot. And you say that, um, none of that stuff really interested me. You know, fame, notoriety, didn't interest me, wasn't what I was doing it for. But then once I realised that actually these brands are approaching me excited to partner up with me on an expedition, but then would turn that off and down through the lack of following and awareness I had. I was like, Oh shit, this is, this is a thing, you know, I need to start thinking, you know, less adventure and more business entrepreneurial effectively, you know, and I needed to perfect both crafts, both the adventure and the business. I needed to look at the team. I needed to, to look at the, the website and, and And really build the name as a as a brand you know and get it out there, and that's when you know again twenty twenty three when this hit me um and that's when I got excited you know I've always been quite business savvy as well to a certain if it's something that I enjoy um and yeah, that's when we just started to grow, up. but we had to grow with zero funds because we still didn't have any funds after Mongolia. So it was all very organic. And that's when we started to build it and more brands were interested and we were developing something. And I thought maybe maybe I could continue this, you know, doing what I love as a passion, uh, earn money along the way, but also um, provide stories, share inspiration, positivity, you know, help along with, with causes um, as I'm doing these journeys.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how, how quickly that grew, I guess. And so, so who were you helping raise money for in Madagascar?
1: Uh, so Madagascar wasn't, I wasn't actually raising money for Madagascar. What I did is I partnered up with the Lehman Network Conservation. And so they're an organisation. Uh, they have 60 organisations on the ground in Madagascar. And they're pretty much helping to protect and preserve all of the unique biodiversity of the island. And so they're expanding national parks, to protect um, the wildlife within. They are providing the older generation with good means of work, because you find that the older generation are cutting down a lot of the forests to flatten it out and start developing paddy fields, which is their way of making money. But of course, such a huge loss to the ecosystem uh, with many of the lemur species on the, on the verge of extinction. Um, and they would then provide the younger generation with education. So they're hitting the younger generation, Um, and for me, I wanted to, you know, I've always believed in spreading awareness, but in a, in a positive way, you only have to switch on the news and there's so much negativity. So I thought if I can bring awareness to, you know, the drastic stuff that goes on, but in a positive way, what I mean by that is if there's a forest fire in Madagascar, don't shout about the lack of help from, or support from the government uh, and how there's a forest fire and all of the wildlife it's killing, but you can get to the forest fire by shining the light on the Lima Network Conservation, showcasing the volunteers that are risking their lives to be out on the field, putting the fire out, bringing certain endemic um, species from the forest within and looking after them. You know, they sort of get shunned to the side, they're doing all of this amazing work, and it's kind of like we don't want to focus on them volunteering, risking their lives. We want to just shout about the negativity of this fire and the damage it's causing. You know, whereas by bringing it positive and saying the Lima Network Conservation do doing amazing work, but they do need to be funded. And so I put the link and so I wouldn't get to see how much they raised, but there would be effectively, yeah, a link that goes straight through to them. More awareness. I remember volunteers um, writing to me whilst I was on the trip or after sending me photos with people I knew because they followed my journey and they wanted to take action and they became volunteers for the Lehman Network Conservation as well, you know? So I made it my job to come off the mountain peaks, to drop down. It was harder work, but it was worth it uh, to drop down and to actually meet up in person with these organizations um, and spread their message. And so I was trying to put the light less on the expedition and more on the the real unsung heroes, you know, the people that don't get the attention that they, they so right deserve.
0: So the, I mean, it's funny cause it's, it sounds almost like the world records are, are, are almost like a byproduct. Like they're the excuse to just get out there, meet these people, raise awareness of these issues and, and just, just see the world. And, and the, 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 if a world record comes along with it, then all the better
1: yeah because the same with madagascar i didn't know there was a world record so when i was planning it in mongolia i knew regardless of it being a record or not madagascar is the place that i want to go to next and even if a hundred people have walked the length of it you know along the mountainous ridge it doesn't matter um it's it's still a special journey and it would still be downright epic you know and there's still lots of things that i can do along that uh that that route and lots of stuff that i can do to give back and you know, it was massive. I was invited back to Madagascar on completion. I think we reached, it was a lot then, doesn't sound like a lot now, but for, for then, I was 24, 25. We reached over 350 million people worldwide. Uh, the tourism minister called me back to the island. He made me UK ambassador for Madagascar tourism. Um, you know, I suffered a, a bad hit from malaria when I was out there and I almost lost my life again too many times, um, and I was invited to be ambassador for Malaria No More UK, so from a dark negative of catch malaria in Madagascar, I was able to address the UK government in parliament, share my personal experience on not how it affected me, you know, I was the lucky one that had the money to recover, it's not about me, it's about when I recovered, and when I did continue, it was about the amount of lives that I saw that were affected by malaria, families ripped apart. Parents can't work and earn money because they've got malaria. Uh, and so they're not able to provide food for their malnourished nourished uh, children. Children aren't able to go to get an education because they're suffering with malaria and living is more important than their education. But when they do get over it, they might have, you know missed years of education. And so that they're now very far behind. Um, and it was shocking. It, it was shocking. And then I realized my guides that joined me for different sections had malaria. Their children once um almost died from malaria i was like whoa and these you know malaria the medication is the same price as a cup of coffee that we get daily and not a lot of people know that so there's people dying over the cost of a coffee for the pills that they need to help save their lives and anyway I, i addressed this with some very visual photos and 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 um videos and it was with annie lennox from eurythmics we were on stage, and you know, as a joint effort—not just mine and Annie's, but as a joint as a whole team—we were able to get an increase to by twenty percent, which boosted the price up to one point two billion pounds. And with that uh, money, would go to the Global Fund and would help to protect cases and lives from malaria. And that number was over eight million lives and cases. And so that, for me, you know, just set me right back. It was like I would take a hit from malaria again knowing that I could potentially help to make a difference, you know, let alone 8 million lives that that could potentially save within the next five years. Um, and so, yeah, that's when, you know, it, it became a sack, the record. That's when I started to think the record is, it's just a record. It's just a kudos thing. You know, Malaria No More Ambassador for me was bigger. And I started that journey and I never knew that that would be a thing, you know? So you go into these adventures, one thing and you come out and like this. Hundreds of different spin-offs off the back of one journey.
0: Yeah, I mean, I th- I'm sure I've heard that they, they say that the most effective way, if you're giving money to charity, the most cost-efficient way of making the biggest difference is buying malaria nets, like bed nets, yeah, to prevent to prevent that's people right. getting malaria.
1: Yeah, and that's what those fundings will go towards. Yeah, nets, medication, just protection, just and education, all of that, so they're still able to go about and. It was, it was horrible, like walking along and thinking, geez, I've just survived because I had the deadliest strain, so I had falciparum, so that's the strain that usually kills you within 24 hours. Um, but I was taking my anti-malarial pills beforehand, but I had eaten a dodgy eel. Um, me and my guide, we were suffering, we were vomiting, we had diarrhea, so I believed the pills were going in one way, out the other. And they only cover you about 80% now anyway, so maybe I had about 40% of that still trying to protect me, but malaria got me. But because of that small strain of anti malarial I had in me, it didn't kill me within 24 hours. Five days later, I was still trekking with malaria in a bad, bad way. Um, Made it to a community that had overland transport, waited to see the effects, realized I wasn't getting better. Uh, One, when I woke up and I couldn't even pick up a glass of water, and realized, oh my God, you know, this isn't heat stroke like in the Gobi Desert, because I thought it was. This is something different. And I made it to, a hotel because I couldn't go into a hospital because I would need to effectively quarantine. And the doctor took a blood test and she said, you've got falciparum, which is the deadliest strain. And if you were three hours later, you could have potentially slipped into a coma, which is crazy how it all adds up. You know, it's crazy how if something happened or if I decided to rest and have lunch for a few hours, I wouldn't have made it, you know, but luckily positive spin. Unfortunately, it was the deadliest strain but fortunately, it was the deadliest strain that I managed to get to the hospital, uh, to the doctors in time. That it's the only strain that you can completely eradicate out of your system. So there's four different strains. The deadliest is the biggest killer, uh, *Falciparum*. But if you're lucky enough to catch it within 24 hours, you've got a chance that you can get rid of it out of your system. And the three lower strains, um, not as deadly, but they can remain dormant in your system. So I'm just glad you know, it was out and I don't, I don't have malaria anymore. It was just that week that it, or well, that two weeks that it got me, um, which is scary.
0: Yeah. It must be scary. Cause that's not unlike a lot of the other stuff with the expeditions. That's just not something within your control really. Mm. And you could take precautions, but you just, you were just unlucky at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Unlucky and lucky. I was, I was kind of like, wow, if I caught malaria anywhere on the journey, I caught it at the best possible place. I thought if I caught it up north where we were at the biggest mountains and the densest jungles, where sometimes we would go over a week um to cover like just 20 miles, you know, a week to cover that when there's no vehicles, it's machete in hand, there's no tracks, nobody goes there. You're sort of opening up uh, your own track via the bush and after you go. And if I call an area there, I guess I need to wait at least two weeks, maybe three weeks. And I just wouldn't have lasted that long, you know. I was lucky to last five days or six days when it usually takes you within a day. So um, yeah, if I was gonna catch it, I caught it at the best place, but certainly unlucky to catch it
0: for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, the the raising awareness of the issues being more important, even if someone else has already done the journey. Cause I was I was before we spoke, I was playing around on Google Earth just looking at the Yangtze and we'll come on to that in a minute. Just what a crazy crazy yeah. distance and crazy undertaking but I was playing around I was looking around Asia and I was trying to think where else might he go and, and Borneo jumps out I don't know if you've ever been to Borneo I it's haven't an ama- amazing amazing really. place and you look at it and it's the third it's the third largest island, island in the world yeah. it's, just, it's an incredible ecosystem and I don't know there's a there's a new David Attenborough documentary out on Netflix seen it or not yeah there you go not a documentary, or yeah more about his life but he talks yeah. about Borneo and Borneo is this sort of case study for just environmental destruction basically yeah, yeah. Uh, and all the palm oil plantations but anyway so i was looking and then i actually i typed in i was like has anyone ever walked across this before maybe that's what ash will do next but i think it's been walked across before i don't know which, di- which yeah. direction but yeah something to think about anyway
1: i've looked into it i have i've been looking i've been looking yeah i looked into that and it has been uh, a tra- but again yeah world record or not i would still love to to get amongst the locals there um, yeah you, you've
0: got to get out there and spend a bit of time Anyway,
1: 100%, yeah. And then, yeah, that documentary was amazing, man. Amazing, the day for that number one. And yeah, the palm oil plantations pop up a lot. Isn't it the last place that will hold elephants, orangutans, and tigers together? Yeah. Jungle book, effectively. So, you know, as soon as they go, there is no jungle book. Isn't yeah.
0: it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic. Um, but you, so, I mean, so you, you, you did your Madagascar Trek. Um, I guess you're already at this point thinking of the next thing. Was the Yangtze already on your list at this point?
1: It was, yeah, the Yangtze was on my list before I attempted Madagascar, So not during, but before. Two rivers were on my list. uh, And that was the Yangtze River and the Congo River. Um, And I had great logistics managers out in the Congo um, who were looking at security, armed guards, and they were talking about the different sections that I would need them for. We were talking about permits, visas. But at that point, I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm 20, how old was I then? 25? going on 26 um, and I now needed to focus more on the business side. And so when it comes to business, finance, marketing, I could be completely transparent. Um, you know, I do, I, I do have bills to pay and I was thinking I need to grow. I need to think smart, not look at the most dangerous things necessarily anymore, but I need to think smart and what would be a heck of an adventure, but also, how you know which journey i can monetize effectively and china one of the world's richest countries um the journey of world first and the yangtze ever since i visited china in 2010 i was there for two weeks on the outskirts you know the very eastern coast and i left for cambodia i looked back on that map and i thought i can't really say i've traveled china you know when i saw the map and how massive china is I was like, I barely even touched the you know, the tip of the iceberg just down the East Coast and left. And I, I just, I, and I loved China for the time that I was there. So I told myself when I was 19, I told my friend Matt, I said, I'll, I'll be back to China. I don't know. I said to him, there's something about China. I'll be back and I'll do a big adventure. I don't know when and I don't know what it will be. And maybe I just, you know, ingrained it on my soul when I was 19, and, you know, eventually, you know, a good few years later. I, uh, I started to pursue that plan. I was looking at the Great Wall. I was looking at the Yellow River. Uh, but the Yangtze, for me, you know, the Tibetan Plateau, west of China, the way it cuts down through 11 provinces, pours out in, you know, one of the most, one of the most prominent cities in the, in the world being Shanghai. And the diversity, the, the amount of culture. And I would just be seeing the real side to China. You know, I wouldn't be seeing China from... Beijing's point of view I would be out there in it the wilderness the wild the real locals out west you know and yeah once I got that in mind and it made sense business wise I was like let's try to pursue this little did I know it'd be so difficult logistically but perseverance
0: yeah, it's funny. Like I, lived, I lived in Shanghai for, for a few years. And there's a, there's a real thing, yeah. there, certainly among the expats, of kind of yeah. dismissing Shanghai itself as this isn't, this isn't the real China. And people almost sort of outdo themselves to talk about how they've seen the real China. But I just have a feeling that no one's done it quite like you have. <laughs> yeah, and you know
1: what I love? Shanghai is a livable sea. I think if I was to live anywhere in China, it would be either, yeah, either Shanghai, or Chengdu, I've never been to Chengdu, but I've heard great things about the place. And I loved Chongqing, which was directly south of Chengdu. But, um, and so even the cities are great. I just love China. You know, Wushu and Zhongwen, I was learning a little bit of Chinese as I was going as well. I thought, you know, this is going to be not just a, an adventure where I, I do the adventure and disappear, like I did with Mongolia and I did with Madagascar. I really want to build up. A rapport there. I want to build up some strong teams, strong network, build my presence in, in the country. And, you know, even after the Yangtze, I do want to look at doing more adventures there in the future uh, and more TV shows, et cetera. So I was always out um, to look at China, not in a touch and go, but in a, you know, second home type of thing.
0: I mean, just logistically, that's one of the challenges with China generally is just kind of getting permits and and often you're almost better off not even getting the permit and just kind of flying a bit under the radar and so on. But just to, just to be in the country for that length of time, I guess you had to front up and sort of tell the authorities what you were planning to do.
1: Yeah, I had to be upfront, honest, um, and that was why it took over two years to plan. Uh, I knew that there was no hiding. You know, there were certain times where I'd go to my logist- uh, to the production team and be like, look, you know, do we really need this? I Trust me, I can find my way there. I'll sneak under the radar. I'll get there. I'll get out. You won't even know. And they're like, "Well, no, you can't, because when we produce the documentary, and if it does, if we do secure commission, which, as you know, you, Nat Geo, you know, the whole world will know. <laughs> so we have to do it by the books." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's so true." And he was like, "And you're trying to make it one of the most digitally engaging expeditions, you know? That's not keeping your audience very much up to date. If you manage to sneak to the source and they didn't, they didn't, you know." See, you get there and there's no photos because you weren't allowed to take photos because it was illegal. And so I thought, true, Um, let's do it the proper way. And the proper way was the hard, long, logistical way where we did have to, you know, I had such a strong team looking back now, you know, in terms of they had to make introductions to the Green Development Foundation who needed to make me a temporary year-long doctor in order to get ambassadorship and to be ambassador for the Green Development Foundation. And only then will the government of Qinghai speak to me. And we needed the government to speak to me because we needed permission to access that national park as well as permits for the Three Sources National Park. But then not only that, we needed protection from the authorities to make sure they don't deport me or send me elsewhere or jeopardize the expedition. And it was just this long lead of different teams, different signatures, different official stamps that just delayed the, the expedition tenfold. You know, even after two years when I was ready to go, the expedition was still two and a half months delayed. In fact, it was so delayed that I was at the most dangerous season. And my logistics team was saying, look, man, abort the expedition. Um, I don't see any other way for you than to, just to, to fall back you know, stay based in China. We'll, we'll try again next year. You'll be better at Mandarin. We'll, you know, we'll help you um, help your skills when it comes to self-filming. You know, we'll be able to develop all sorts in that time. And I just might, in, I think maybe if this was my first expedition, so without the Mongolia and the Madagascar experience, maybe I would have listened to them and been like, yeah, you're right. But I, you know, I was experienced at this, at this point. I'd faced many, I'd I'd come across many people who had been nervous for me in the past, many naysayers or many people who doubted it could be be possible. I'm not saying the production team doubted my capabilities because they didn't. Um, But they were certainly aware that if I attempted to do this and something happens to me, you know, part of the responsibility would fall on them. So I was trying to warn them that, look, it wouldn't. You're just there for the documentary. You know, there's my baby, my project. And if I choose to jeopardize myself and something happens to me, it's on me, it's on no one else. And so I told them, I believe in my preparation. I have put over two years of energy and focus and time onto this project. I believe I can get off the mountains before the depth of winter. Um, You know, just trust me type of thing. And they did. And, And, you know, here we are still. And if I delayed it that year... I would have been hit by COVID and sent home anyway, having not completed Mission Yangtze. So it was so lucky that I just went with my gut
0: feeling and my belief in my own preparation. But Weren't you, weren't you like about the only one of that starting group that did make it off the mountain without having to get hauled off? Like how did that, how did that yeah. play out?
1: Yeah. So before we'd even reached day number one, before we'd reached the source of the Yangtze river, um, my first videographer who was about to fly out the next day, learned of the dangers I, you know, I didn't speak to him direct, but I told the production team, update him, you know, you know, fully let him know what he's in for. Um, and they were like, no, we don't want to put him off. And it was like, no, you, you need to let him know what he's in for, you know, because if he realizes that there's bears and no one warned him, And if he was to get attacked, you know, that's pause on us. He needs to be warned fully and briefed on absolutely everything. And then it's up to him what he chooses to do. And so they warned him, they briefed him. He called up and was like, absolutely not. You're on your own. So we lost the film crew before we even started. And then a second film crew was sent out to us um, and we almost made it to the source. We were about two days away from the source. And they bailed. They were already suffering with altitude sickness, but I believe the real reason was when a local came by and said, oh, a bear was right where you are this morning, you know, right where you're about to camp. I saw a bear there this morning. And the next morning they freed, they left so that was the second film crew and it was just down to that film crew left me with their horse we didn't need no horse but now we've got a horse and we're in the middle of the wilderness and we're like right we may as well give him a name and you know put our rucksacks on him which will be great because it's lighter than a person anyway uh i think my pack was about 35 kilograms and my guides was about the same 30 so you're talking about 60 kilograms is like a, a a girl really isn't it a, a lady um compared to what the horse was going to carry which was all of the film crew stuff which would maybe amount to 150 kilograms i don't know and so they disappeared they left me with this horse and you know the tibetan guide was pretty much there as a security measure so that if any of us or all of us get altitude sickness he can get us off the mountains but he got altitude sickness And I had to get him off the (laughs) mountains. He was bleeding from the nose. He was vomiting. And I was like, oh, this couldn't, you know, we've not made the source yet. I've got 352 days and I'm not even at day number one. And I've lost these teams. And now he's suffering so bad that I need to take him out off elevation, down an altitude. Um, And then he was too free. He didn't want to join me. He knew about the Bears and the Wolves and that we've left it two and a half months too late anyway that he was like, no, and we offered him more money. He was like, nope, you're on your own. Um, and we were like, shit, okay. And then I had to then remain in a city for another two weeks because um, I could go alone. It would have been reckless. And I was, you know, in no fairness, I was scared to go alone. There were, so the bears, it was torpor season. Um, torpor, the bears don't quite slip into hibernation. They call it torpor, which is kind of like similar to hibernation. So it was when they come off the mountain when it's too cold And they're looking for food before they go into hibernation. So they're actively on the hunt, effectively. Uh, And it was all on the news, you know, all the time. There's news that the bear got rocks up and kills a family in this community. I went out there with a healthy mindset, a Western mindset of, you leave the bears alone and they'll leave you alone. But the locals were showing me and telling me that that, that's not the case. Um, The bears won't leave you alone. And they were showing me videos and stories of like even a concrete hut with a steel door the way a bear is scratching at the steel door, trying to get inside. And one guy just cleared his cupboard of like the pasta and hid in his cupboard, you know, in case the bear broke in. And I'm like, oh my God. And he said, he just walked straight past his Tibetan mastiff. And I'm like, well, if they don't care about Tibetan mastiffs and they're trying to scratch down a steel door, what hope do I have in a tent? Um, and so there was a lot of fear. So I needed the right team. We found the right team. We didn't find the right film crew. We were unsuccessful get in the film crew so in the documentary that you'll see with Nat Geo all of the beginning footage towards the source was all shot by myself um, but I had two guides I'd kudos to the guides I like to give credit where credit is due they joined me for three weeks the most dangerous part of the expedition um, and, and we're solid we, they spoke to better you know we couldn't communicate but it was almost like that we argued in different languages but we had that brotherhood, you know, towards the end where we had faced crazy, crazy times just in that three weeks. Uh, I, I waved goodbye. You know, I continued. Um, so, yeah, the, the start was difficult, but effectively first attempt was a failed attempt. Second attempt, we made it successfully and we're, we're well on our way trying to beat the winter season where it drops to minus 40. We, we faced 20 degrees Celsius, which is trying to get off the mountains before minus 40 degrees
0: and I mean, how did it stack up compared to the previous expeditions? It's a lot longer, right? I mean, what is it four 4,000 mile, 4, 4, miles, 4,000 kilometers, 4,000 miles? 4,000 miles. Yeah. So yes. six and a half thousand kilometers or just under. And um, it, was it, was it more of a logistical challenge then, or it sounds like it perhaps wasn't as quite as daunting as the, just the solitary desert and mountains of Mongolia. Um, Different, I would say
1: oof, the jungles of Madagascar were nails. The desert of Mongolia, I almost lost my life. And, you know, there was something about the, the Tibetan Plateau where although I was with two guys and a horse, I almost felt more vulnerable than I did in Mongolia, being alone and unsupported. There was something wild, man. But that Tibetan plateau, you know, we saw a bear day two or day three in the distance. We came across the footprints. At nighttime, we would have to set off Chinese firecrackers, two, three o'clock in the morning because the wild yak were getting too close to our camp. And I was like, they're they're cows, they're cattle, you know, what are you scared about some cows for? And they educated me, but not right there and then because we can converse or communicate but I found out three weeks later that what they were trying to say is the wild yak is so brutal, but even the bears run away from the yak uh, and they get very territorial. And in mating season, they become super aggressive. And it was mating season. And so they were after Castor Choi and they've been known. So you have to separate if you've got horses, you have to separate them uh, or keep them enclosed uh, in case there are wild yak because they will come over and they will just rip the rip the horses apart. And even they see bears and the bears run away. So the wild yak, we're getting too close to our camp. So gone mid you know, two in the morning, I'm fast asleep in my tent. And then I wake up to firecrackers, launch and I'm like bricking myself. What's going on? Get outside. And I'm like, what the hell's up? And they're like telling me about these cows that got too close. And I was like, really? Chinese firecrackers for, for cows. And then they taught me of the danger. So that was scary. You know, we had that. Um, we followed by a pack of wolves. Uh, the bears were scary. There was a landslide that sent. So my UK photographer came to join me, uh, and his plan was to join me for about two weeks. He left after six hours on day number one. You know, it just felt like mission. That like the Yangtze River was just chewing people up and spitting them out. And tried with me many times, but it was almost like this beast that you've got to try to tame. Is how I, I how I explain it. You know, if you're all sensitive and mush around it or you're not quite as, you know, um stubborn should I say, it will just send you home. And it sent before month number four, it sent ten members of the 16 people that joined me. Um ten members home, just spat them out. And so it was demanding in that case, you know. Was it life threatening like Mongolia, Madagascar? I would say I, I I I would say I didn't allow it to get to that stage, but that's me being confident and believing in my preparation. Could have also been down to luck. You know, we had river crossings to cross. We you know, we we were missed by landslides, the bears didn't come close. So any one of those things that did go wrong like they went wrong in Madagascar catching malaria or Madagascar being held up at gunpoint or Madagascar crossing crocodile infested rivers. You know, Madagascar just has stories of everything being a little bit too close for comfort. We had spiders that would bite me and, you know, they'd get infected. I'd have to break off aloe vera plants and put them on. I was hunting. I was hunting. I was gathering. I had leeches that I would had to ply off my, off my skin, six of them every night, you know, a good six or seven flicked them out my tent, Um, the military were were drunken, kept me held up at gunpoint. Lucky they didn't pull the trigger. And so Madagascar had just too many close calls that were too close, just too close. Whereas Mission Yangtze, there were close calls, but it felt like I did a much better job at keeping those close calls at bay. Or some people like to call it, you got lucky.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a combination of luck, but also just, just forward planning and, and and what you said right at the start, that, that dogged determination. I mean, it, mm. I'm kind of curious, like how you, what would it take do you think for you to to call a mission off at this point? It sounds like you'd, you know, you'd have to almost be stretched off the. Yeah, the I, think so.
1: I think so. Um, when I'm out there, you know, there is a different side to me. I do, I do, I am always looking ahead and thinking more sensibly now than I was at the age of 19, psych in Vietnam or whatnot. You know, so there is that fact that that, you know, my life is much more important than any journey. You know, I can always come back and redo the journey. Um, and so I do look at it like that. But at the same time, there is that thing inside that says, You've got this. You know, it's scary, it's daunting, but you know, you've faced worse. You've put in a lot of training. This hasn't come as a surprise. It's something that you visualized. You knew this could go wrong. You know, so when I face difficulties, there's almost... there's What I've noticed on the expeditions, I never feel sorry for myself. You know, if I'm in a, a horrible scenario, whether I'm suffering with starvation, which I have done, whether I'm suffering with um, heat exhaustion, dehydration, whether I'm trying to walk and I've got the world's deadliest disease... There's never a time where I'm like, you know, it's happened to me again or boohoo me. It's like, no, I volunteered to do this, you know, put myself in this scenario. I knew that when I was training in the gym at home, I knew that this would be a potential threat and I could contract malaria or I may miss a water source or I may be held up at gunpoint or I may, you know, there's always. So it comes down to the risk assessment. So I never go into a journey recklessly anymore knowing. Um, that something could go go wrong and I might not have, know how to handle it. I'm always now going up to these journeys, understanding, researching and studying what could go wrong, what the challenges and obstacles could be and learning how I can possibly overcome them so that when something drastic does happen, it doesn't hit me as a shock, as a surprise where I freak out. And like, oh, no, it hits me. Yeah, I'm gutted that it's happened. But it's happened, it's not come as a shock, it's come as something I did know it could happen, now I just need to tackle it. Um, and so that's the mindset. Even when I was under the car, a lot of people say, you know, when you were slowly dying, you know, did you think of your parents? Or, uh, I, I, I drifted into that mode for a short section. I was thinking, you know, how did I fuck up? Or why did I, where did I go wrong? And, you know, because you, you have to motivate yourself, you've got no one to make decisions for you, your decisions are on you, and they have to be the right decision. Uh, like even if I got the wrong track and that took me away from the community and now I've got six days and not four days, those six days I don't believe I could have survived. I couldn't have lasted six days. Four days was crucial. But then once I got rid of that sort of boo-hoo me and, you know, thinking of family, I just thought of one option and that option was was survival. It was focusing on my goals and it was focusing on making it to that community. And once I realized and effectively, once I eradicated that option of death out of my mind, which was probably outweighing the possibility of surviving at that point, once I'd eradicated that and focused on that 40% chance maybe that I have of survival, that just boosted everything in me and gave me that energy uh, to push on. Survival instinct, we've all got it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason I'm so interested in I think what, you, what you've done, and, and it's all so timely with... With everything that's happened this year, I mean, it's 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 kind of interesting, right? Like, in a way, we're all sort of we've all been dealing with more isolation than we're used to, more uncertainty, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, just a barrage of negative news every day. And I think a lot of people have, sh- understandably, really struggled with that—the um, not knowing what's next, not knowing how something's going to go on for—and so I think I'm just I'm just yeah. fascinated by you know that mindset that you've you, you've had and how yeah, you've broken it down. Um, yeah. And even just just how you how you coped with being on your own for extended periods of time, I think is really really interesting and insightful. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just with, just I mean, I don't want to spoil too much about Mission Yangtze because because obviously people can watch it on on that geo. But um, had that had that been attempted before? Was that the first what time?
1: we found, uh, we found um, kayaking expeditions. We found that there was a team in the nineteen eighties. So there was an American team attempting to become the first team to ever raft the Yangtze River from from the traditional source. I'll get onto the sources. So you've got a traditional source and you've got a true and scientific source. So they were attempting it from the traditional source, and the Chinese got wind of this. And the Chinese, of course, they wanted to be first. And so you had those, the American team and the Chinese team. I think there's a book about it as well. I've not read it though. And they attempted to, you know, to be the first. They raced against each other. And I think Within the first week, there was a couple of deaths from the altitude. So it was at over 5,100 metres altitude. about equivalent to Everest Base Camp. Um, and then there were injuries, you know, the, the rivers not to be messed around with. And both teams failed before they reached the halfway point. And so when I would mention to what I'm doing to the Chinese press, because of course it was massive in China, their first thought would be, well, if people didn't survive it, rafting, what chance do you have of walking, you know, when they were rafting, they were able to get further away from the bears, from the wolves you know, they weren't at altitude for such a long time because they were constantly you know, decreasing their elevations um, and you know bears, wolves, they, you know, they were a group with a good team of people and And yeah, you know, they could have been right. You know, I'd be amongst with the bears, with the wolves. I'd be at the colder temperatures for a lot longer. I'd be at the altitude for a lot longer. I wouldn't be able to just jump on a a raft and sort of go in between the S-bends. I'd have to climb and scramble up and down the mountains whilst following the S-bend and rivers. So that was what we could find, but we couldn't find any any walking trips Um, like we had the guinness book of records you know do extensive global research with their american team with their uk team and you know i had a solid team like multiple solid teams across the world as well and we were like right okay Uh, and one of the main reasons is when we come back to the sources so you've got the traditional source of the yangtze river and you've got the true and scientific source so the guy who mapped the traditional source of the yangtze For many years, kind of knew he was, he had made an error and he didn't quite nail where the true source was. And so, in 2009, only in 2009, he partnered up with NASA to use their satellite uh, with a much stronger team and they went at it again. And he was able to correct his wrong and he found the true and scientific source of the Yangtze, which is the longer source and it's further. down south, closer to Tibet, which would make it super sensitive for me. So whilst I was planning almost a year at the traditional source, and when we discovered that actually, you know, there's a true and scientific source, I had to, I had to do it. I had to do the longer one. I had to do the true one, um, and that was only discovered in 2009, which is mental. Uh, but no, it, certainly from the traditional source, we couldn't even find anyone as well. So that's both the scientific and the traditional and then with the scientific being discovered only in 2009 we only had to search from 2009 up to 2018 to see if anyone had done it from the true scientific source you know so it was exciting um and guinness book of records had locked down they don't do firsts anymore and so it took a year to get them on board they said we don't do firsts i went to meet them in the beijing headquarters um meanwhile they had like a big poster behind the reception saying world first blah 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 and they were like yeah but that was from like five years ago and i was like look there's going to be a lot of media hype there's going to be like potential documentary i pretty much said you should be seen partnering up with something decent rather than the world's fluffiest bunny rabbit um or world's fattest jaffa cake or whatever you know and you know we were able to speak to their main marketing campaign and managing director and and they're relevant people uh, and it was my team sitting in with their team and um, a year later they approached and they opened it up this one time for a world first, applied for it. And they took, you can imagine, months. They had to go through all of my tracking device. It was tracking me every five minutes for 352 days, 24-7 for my speed, my elevation, everything, the lot. Um, but they opened it up. And then as soon as we got that first, they closed it down again. Um, so mate, I, so. there's an exciting aspect to think maybe I've got the, the, the last world first with the Guinness book, but I'm sure if a David Beckham or some huge name came in that said they're looking still first, I'm pretty sure they would open it up, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, that seems strange that they wouldn't do that. I mean, I guess every, everyone's got a talent but you'd have thought yeah. people would be more interested in, in world firsts than... Yeah, like you said.
1: They said that, you know, there's so many, and it was difficult to get Madagascar and Mongolia verified because they confirmed that no one had done it before, to their knowledge, but they can't put it in because there's too many points of ways and they don't do firsts. So I was gutted. I was like, "Oh, great, so you've confirmed it, but you haven't confirmed it. So you've confirmed it, but you've not made it official because there's too many points of ways. And I was like, surely if there's a Mount Everest trek, you go from the top to the bottom. With Madagascar, it's the same. Doesn't matter which route you take up Everest, you get to the top. So it shouldn't matter what route I take up Madagascar, I get to the most northern point. But they just said no, it's not. It doesn't work. I think personally, it's because they want me to pay, which I didn't have the funds. I wasn't a name, um, and I didn't have the team. It was sort of me messaging directly on email. Um, but it worked with the Yangtze, and and so yeah, it's great to get that in the books, of course, for sure. Not that it's necessary, because it's certainly not. But it's it's nice, you know.
0: Yeah and like you said I mean if you're trying to if you're trying to build a brand around it even if even if the primary reason for building that brand is raising awareness and everything else yeah. just that extra bit of publicity will help but I think yeah. I mean it, it's interesting because you so you got the world first you've fantastic you've got this documentary coming out I think a lot of people could look at your story or listen to your story and sort of see that as just sort of a, 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 the progression of a guy who's just not failed at anything he's done because you you've done these three things that you've managed to do all of them but you, you and I were talking earlier and, and sort of behind the scenes, that's not always been the case, right? You, so you, you tried to get these documentaries off the ground before and that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, you know, the amount of times I've faced rejection, the amount of times that we've, you know, I've planned an expedition, I've had a sponsor who's going to jump on board with the right finances and then they've dropped out a couple of months before and then I no longer have the funds to do it, but I've shouted about the record. So I'm now having to try to find a way to make it happen on a low budget. That's happened constantly. The amount of channels and teams that have been involved and been like, yeah, let's do it. And then they'll disappear. You know, we want to commission the show and then you never hear from them again or Guinness Book. Yes, it's, you know, we can confirm and then, but they don't want to be a part of it. Constant, constant rejection. Thousands upon thousands of times where I've been so angry, so stressed, so like, I just may as well just just stop just go back to scuba diving or, or whatever because this clearly isn't working um, because it's not just one year it's not two years it's three years it's year four and still still now we face rejection but it's on more of a prominent level where we know like we've made it now so there's no alternative to this there's just different avenues of working with different people sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't you move on you find better teams and whatnot you know so now I still do face a lot of rejection but in a much um not necessarily cushier place, but safer place to be, better place, much better place to be, I guess. But yeah, the crux of it, the Mongolia one, you know, I, I was self film on the whole journey, and nothing in Madagascar. Um, Discovery were super excited. They send me the right um, equipment to self film, and I complete it absolutely nothing. And so there are lots of you know Mongolia. I tried to get the book off the ground wasn't a good enough story. Nothing. So this will always happen. And it does. It's not, it's in every industry. And I knew that as I said at the beginning, I didn't want to be that character who, who comes and disappears. I wanted to, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to pass by. I'm here to stay type of thing. Kind of like that one hit wonder. And it's knowing deep down that I will get there because even in 10 years time, if I'm still in the same position, I still can't see myself stopping, you know? So I'm still going to be as dogged 10 years from now as I am in a fun way, you know, not in a grafting way like I was before Mongolia. Still in a grafting way, but it's important to enjoy, enjoy and live in the moment. But I'm not going anywhere. This is what I love. This is who I am. This is my life. So if they say no now, I will get that yes. And I think that's the attitude that you need. It's like whether it's in a year's time or two years' time, it's like Nagio didn't come on for Mongolia, but I knew that you know one day at some point there would be a collaboration I could just visualize I could see it and and yeah the announcement was the other day and I do believe that this is the the beginning to to many more you know it's always the hardest part is getting your foot in the door Um, that is the hardest part because no one wants to take any risks on any new faces they'll just milk like the old the older names dry and won't give the younger generation a new chance because there's already this big established name and sometimes they don't get it. But yes, but he charges millions and I'm not going to charge you millions. So, you know, you can put that into the marketing. it's back and forth. It gets difficult. and It gets incredibly frustrating. But I'm a positive guy. I don't really to talk too much about the negatives. But, you know, recent times people have been, very much interested about the the team you know the crux of it uh, the business side of it and I think that's equally important because if someone else is looking to do this um and if I can help in any way then I I always will you know when I first started in this adventuring career I was one of those who you know was asking the bigger names I won't mention names you know how to and can you help with this or can you provide this email or whatnot pure blanks pure like no we you know this is our click you know you stay you stay over there type of thing and i said to myself i see you and i'll never be like that we'll always be open transparent anyone wants help i will provide help no matter what and uh
0: so yeah (laughs) yeah i mean i think i mean i have to say like i think the way you've you've tackled it has been really inspiring and I, i you know i'd certainly hope that there's a there's a generation even younger than yours that that looks to you and and sort of suddenly realizes what might be possible i mean i think Aside mm-hmm. from what we were saying earlier about just your background being a bit different, something that just comes across, and I'm sure probably comes across in the documentary, is just you just look like you're having fun most of the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. you know, it, it just isn't the case with a lot of the sort of, the more sort of survival-focused, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. documentaries. I mean, you know, and obviously, I'm you know, we, as we talked about, there were some really hard times on your trip. I'm sure it wasn't all fun and games. But yeah. just to yeah. be able to tackle it with a bit of a grin on your face and see see the funny side in, in even those darker situations, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, it, it is, isn't it? It is, I think. And, you know, with this, I do have to uh, mention that with this documentary, amazingly well put together. Um, but certainly there's a lot of the, the dark scenarios, a lot of sensitive topics, a lot of the um, police issues and their issues that were held back. I think they'll probably change for an international audience, but for the age audience, I think it was kind of um, tamed down slightly, 100% sure why, uh, maybe for the better for now. But yeah, so it looks a little bit too positive and too happy and too fun. Uh, but that's why we need to now work on the book, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: I think, I think, I guess, regardless of, of of quite how it comes out, I think it's also just really important well, maybe importance too strong a word but it's just really it's really good timing that this is coming out i mean china just gets such negative press at the moment right and i think you know you've you've seen yourself it's an amazing place with amazing yeah. people um, yeah. and you just get you know you just get the warmest of welcomes in, in the most obscure places there and i think um you know you'll have found that as you as you were walking along it's just the the yeah. the, the the public perception of that place and the, then the people in it couldn't be further yeah. apart yeah
1: 100%. And that is what this, that's one thing I'm proud to say that this documentary definitely does show. It shows the immense hospitality all throughout. It shows these wacky traditions, amazing cultures, crazy delicacies, you know. So the first sort of, first episode is kind of like hardcore in the element survival. And the second is pretty much because um, the film crew never really walked with me, they found it too challenging. So they would meet me at cities which isn't necessarily a bad thing. That means that we were able to really mix and mingle with the locals in historic cities or in communities and really showcase um, their way of life. So yeah, you'll see that for sure. And so I can't wait. Yeah. 20th of October, not long.
0: Yeah. Well, look, look, Ash, I'm conscious. I've taken up a lot of your time. And just, I mean, I I guess one more thing I'm curious about, maybe we do a couple of quick fire questions, but one thing is just how do you adjust when you come off these expeditions? Something like something like Mission Yangtze, you were out for what? You you were walking for the best part of a year. You must have been away for almost over a year, I guess.
1: Yeah, over a year and a half, I think. Yeah. In China for a year and a half, just over. So then
0: and then and, and and that experience, like every day is so vivid and so different. And what's that first day back off the trip like? How do you how do you kind of decompress, readjust to being back in Wales?
1: Well, I think I was kind of eased into the ending point quite gradually and quite nicely. Um, So the first six months of the Yangtze was almost like a different journey. You know, we kept losing members. It was very difficult. I closed it off for people to join. But the second half of the journey, I opened it up. Um, You know, we had brands joining. We had public. We had Chinese celebrities, um, over 100 people. We were uh, streamed to over a million people, you know. And it was very interactive. There were book signing events. There were presentations. There were talks regarding sustainability. I, was stopped, uh, I would stop to work with the WWF um, and organizations helping to protect the, econ- um, the environment. And so this meant that it wasn't 352 days of solid everyday walking, 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 because it would have been a shame if it was that I would have missed out on a lot. But the second half was a lot of different communities and cities where there were activities going on that I was able to really meet the people. And, you know, I remember being in a, um, a hot pot restaurant and they took me under their wing they, and they, they made me a waiter. For a few hours you know we're showing the ingredients and serving it up and the right technique and what to say when you're coming through the room and all of that is is on there as well and you know the fishery department how they're helping to protect the fish of the Yangtze river from illegal fishermen um and so yeah it kind of it wasn't from the wilderness and extremes like straight to popping that champagne at the at the finish line there was gradual momentum. you know. There, there was a big photo shoot with GQ and Adidas um, to launch Jet Li's co-branded range with Wuji, And that's with Jackie Huang, who's like a martial arts star and, and movie star. And because he shouted about it on his Weibo and Weijing, a you know, Chinese social media platform, there was more of a gathering and a following then. People just coming to meet me at the riverbanks at different cities as i'm walking through you know which was amazing so it was that gradual pro-, t- uh, pro process of more people more awareness more journalists more film crew coming out and by the end yeah that was a there was a big thing at the end and so yeah there wasn't that transition it was just a, a nice easy transition to make i'd say
0: yeah have you, I mean, have you found it difficult being stuck in, in one place, or has it been quite nice to have your feet on the ground somewhere? The I, it's been, I think, if I came back into lockdown and I wasn't busy,
1: that's where the danger lies, you know. Um, but I've just been mad busy. Um, and since the Yangtze, you know, it was, it was back home for two weeks and then it was straight back out there for an Asia speaking tour. Um, and then it was back here. Then it was, where was it? Then it was like Greece for a corporate tour. It was all of these different places. It was LA for the, for the, um, podcast. Um, it was back to LA a second time. I've now got, speaking of teams, it's a pretty important part to, to the business side. I've now got the Brad Slater, who's, um, WME, a biggest agency in the world. And he manages Dwayne Johnson, the rock, um, other huge names, Ronda Rousey and whatnot. So he's now my agent, so he flew me out to meet here and meet the various teams over there. And we've been grinding away and working on um, uh, some new projects. Can't talk about them just yet, unfortunately, but, you know, grinding in the back and the background there. And and so, yeah, I, then when, when this lockdown came, it was just all of the busyness with the Mandarin films, with Singapore, with the team in LA, you know, still online presentations. So And then we secured this commission during lockdown as well. Um, so, been keeping busy. I've been keeping with busy with the training as well. So, still setting those goals down, ticking off the days, and
0: getting through it. Exit lockdown better than how you entered is how I see it. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good way to end on. And but maybe I just fire a couple of couple of uh, quick fire questions at you just just as we go out. Um, I mean, who do you who do you look to for inspiration? Was there someone when you were growing up that's like your your personal hero?
1: Um,
0: I wouldn't say there's anyone in
1: particular. I would say it's multiple, many, many people from many different industries is the way to put it. So I wouldn't categorize anyone. I would say it could be in the Olympics world. It could be in the athlete world. It could be in the adventuring world, even the business and entrepreneurial world. I just am inspired by people who go against the odds and go on to achieve it regardless of everything being stacked up against them, you know, and that's what, like you you hear stories don't you about people trying to achieve and Mm. they had so much against them. And I was like, wow, why didn't they quit? And luckily they didn't quit. And now they, you know, they're this or they're making that or, you know, they're living the life they always dreamed of. And that for me is inspiring. And of course, many people that I meet on my travels, I'm inspired by them as well. People I'll never see again, just their way of living. You know, not on social media, just but doing their own thing, their way of life, which is inspiring as well. I think we can learn from many people, not just public figures online you know
0: yeah what about what about how you learn like what's you? do you have a go to podcast or a book that you're currently reading
1: um I was reading a few um the ones that I recommend is the secret I like that um you are a badass, I like that one. I forgot the the author of that, and Homo sapiens. Is a great one, just gets yeah. you thinking, you know. So
0: there are three great ones, and Mission Possible. <laughs> and that's that's your first book, isn't it? So you are you gonna work? Are you gonna do another one? Yeah, maybe, maybe
1: we'll see if it's worth doing another one. It's about what you choose to focus your time on, really. Um, the book could be a good thing, or maybe grinding for the next TV show could be better. Um, and so, still in the still in the process, we'll see yeah. how far. This series, growth If we just if it just keeps rolling out, and there's more channels, more countries, and you know, if we hit the UK, we've got the biggest publisher here who wants to go ahead and publish the book internationally. So we'll um we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, I'd like I, to.
0: Like to. Again, I'm sure you're not going to tell us where where your next um, expedition is going to be. But is there is there one country still on your bucket list that you you're just desperate to get to or destination? There's many,
1: there's many countries still on my list. Um, I know that the Congo is still up there. Um, just something or somewhere in the Congo would be cool. It's not necessarily what I'm planning to do next. I'm planning like 10, 12 different things already, you know, so it depends on what the, what myself and the team in LA choose and whether the channel goes to commission, because we're now looking at the bigger picture, you know, getting it out more on the the bigger audience, which is the, um, these big channels and so uh so yeah it's exciting it's exciting let's see
0: well look ash like i think you i think what you've done already is is hugely inspiring and uh and all the better for the fact that you've kind of done it all yourself without um and you've trodden your own path along the way so it, it sounds like it's uh it's just getting started
1: it's always doable isn't it it's always doable that's the main message doesn't matter what background where you come from how much money you have there's always a way it's always a way
0: we're very grateful for your time ash thank you so much
1: appreciate that rick thank you kindly and uh, i will hit you up when i am next
0: in singapore look forward to it and we'll uh, we'll post links to the documentary and uh, and the book and everything else and uh, much appreciate and get it. people watching it the truthful story of the stop the complaining because things ain't that bad bad